We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now with your Bible, open to 1 John, chapter number 2 and verse number 1. Now I want to bring you a message tonight on the assurance of salvation. I think to be one of the most important uh, needs and realities that you face in your Christian journey is the assurance of salvation. Now it's good to be saved, but it's better to be saved and know that you are. And know from the right source, not from uh, man's source, but the Bible source, the assurance of your salvation. In 1 John 2 and verse 1, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. Of all the books in the Bible, if you were to come to me and say, uh, Preacher, what do you think to be the most wonderful? What has meant more to you than any other of all the books of the Bible? I think without hesitation, I would probably answer the first epistle of John. Down to the years, it's helped me in more ways than I have time to mention uh, in this introduction. And I appreciate the five glorious chapters contained in this little epistle here in the New Testament. I know of no book that will so establish and so encourage and so edify and so strengthen you as a believer as these five chapters. I've committed most of it to memory. I've read from it so many times, preached through it over the radio off three or four or five times and preached here at prayer meeting from the first epistle of John. And I've read it in private uh, devotion and meditation many, many times. What a great book 1 John actually is. It helps me that I may know that my sins are washed away. Now, if you read the five chapters, you'll find that over and over again, uh, the epistle says, my little children. Now, it doesn't take a wise man to know that John's talking about the born-again ones with that kind of terminology. Uh, John would not use that terminology in reference to a drunkard or to an atheist or a scoffer or an infidel. Of course not. My little children refers to you and I that name the name of Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Now, my little children, uh, God's born-again ones, these things, the things of 1 John, write I unto you that ye sin not. Now, I can say dogmatically that it's the will of God that we sin not. Now, I would to God that I could say also dogmatically that none of God's people commit sin. But I'm afraid that I can't say that. Now, I know I'm well aware of the fact that there are those about us who claim to have attained a state of sinless perfection. But that claim is unscriptural. That claim is unrealistic. And I put a question mark in my mind about a person that would be bold enough to claim to have attained sinless perfection in their lives. No. Now, I, I would to God we could uh, 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 claim that and achieve that. And someday when I drop the robe of flesh in which I now tabernacle, I'm going to get a glorified body that will not be subject to the passions and to the sins and to the temptations that I'm bothered with through this tabernacle of clay in which I now live. But until that day, I have a potential of sin lying at my door. Not only do I have that potential, but every believer within this building has the same potential. Now, it's the will of God that we sin not. And when I say sin not, I don't mean uh, drinking or cussing or lying or stealing or cheating. Things like that, or fornication, or adultery. Why, I don't think any born-again person would indulge in things like that. I, I didn't do those things uh, before I was converted. And I doubt if some of you did those things before you were converted. If I've ever stolen anything in my life, I don't recall it. And I've never drank a can of beer in my life. And I've never cursed, not to my knowledge, if I've ever used God's name in vain. I don't recall having done that. I think I would have had I done it. And uh, some of the things that sometimes are classified and ought to be classified as sin, some of us are not guilty of. But I couldn't say that I've always been completely obedient. And I doubt if anybody in the building tonight could stand up and say, I have never in any degree disobeyed the Lord. I doubt if you could say that. I wouldn't say that I've always been as sanctified uh, in my thinking, in my mind, as I should have been. And I doubt if there's anybody in this building that has achieved uh, purity of thought and purity of mind to the degree that you'd love to achieve it. Now, uh, I wouldn't say that my faith has always been uh, absolutely what it ought to be. And I'm told in the Bible that whatsoever is not a faith is sin. 
If we doubt and waver in that degree, we sin. God wants us to believe him. And if you don't have faith in God, then you've, uh, you've, you've sinned in not having faith in the Lord. And sometimes my faith has wavered. I've doubted God. I've doubted God's sufficiency. I've doubted God's ability. I've doubted God's uh, uh, leadership at times. And I'm, I'm not bragging about that. I'm simply trying to say, my little children, these things write on to you that you sin not. Now, it's God's will that you and I be totally obedient and completely sanctified upon the altar, pure in our thinking, pure in our heart, pure in our words, and pure in our minds. And I doubt if there are any in the building that could stand up and say, I have attained that in a sinless way. No, no, we sin. And look at the next verse. If any man sin, here is God's divine admission that it's possible for a man, my little children, to sin. And if any man sin, now God doesn't will that you sin, but it's in the realm of possibility that you sin. And if you do sin, are you to abandon the church? Are you to abandon your faith? If you do sin, are you to close the Bible and give up the ship and haul down the flag and toss in the towel? If you do sin, are you to silence your testimony and stop your singing and cease your praying? No. And if any man sin of my little children, remember that we have an advocate with the Lord, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what he says in verse number one. We have an advocate with God. And that advocate is a lawyer that pleads my case before the throne of God in heaven. And that advocate is identified as Jesus Christ, my high priest at God's right hand, ever living to make intercession for me and for you that are saved in God's grace. Now the next verse reads, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and he is the propitiation for my sin and for yours, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I wonder how the limited atonement fellows get around that. The Bible seems to be pretty clear at that point that he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, if I understand what that says, Christ died sufficiently to redeem whosoever will. And there isn't anybody in all the earth beyond the scope of God's divine propitiation or atonement. Now, sometimes people reject that atonement and go on in their own faith and their own belief, but they can't blame God for that because ample atonement has been wrought upon Calvary for every sinner on God's earth if they'll come to receive Jesus. Now, look at the next verse. And hereby we do know that we know him. I like that double knowledge there. And hereby we do know that we know him. Now, I'm going to stop right at that particular point. I'll come back to that text a little bit later on. But hereby we do know that we know him. Now, that's a double assurance that we know that our sins are forgiven. And hereby we do know that we know him. Not maybe, but we know that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I want to say to you that doubt is a common thing. I wouldn't be at all surprised if every person within this building and the hundreds that may be hearing by the radio has not sometime since you've been converted doubted your experience of grace. Now, sometimes we've, we, we're a little bit hesitant about talking about uh, this problem of doubt for fear somebody will get the idea that our experience is not quite as valid, not quite as great, not quite as good as somebody else's was, and therefore we're rather hesitant, we're rather hesitant in talking about the matter of doubt. We're a little bit ashamed of the matter of doubt. That ought not to be, not by any means. Uh, you take sometimes when people have mental problems. Anybody could have a mental problem. It isn't a disgrace for a person to have a mental uh, breakdown, no more than it's a disgrace for you to have a ruptured appendix. If that could happen, a ruptured appendix could happen to anybody anytime. And by the same logic, you could also have some mental disorder. But in our day, we're a little bit hesitant about talking about it. We, we, uh, we're afraid to talk about a mental problem, our mental disturbance, our, our nervous condition. We're a little hesitant, a little reserved. You ought not to be. 
Well, if you're having that kind of a problem, you ought to come and sit down in my office and talk with me. And I'm not a psychologist, but I think I can help you. And by all means, you ought to go to your physician and talk to your doctor about it. Nothing to be uh, ashamed of, no more than any other kind of illness. But sometimes we're a little hesitant. We don't, talk, we don't mind talking about a bad appendix. Or we don't mind talking about the operation we had. But we're a little bit hesitant about talking about certain physical or mental problems that might come our way. And as a result, sometimes we suffer because we're hesitant of facing up to the fact. Now, the matter of the assurance of salvation is much like that. We get the idea that if we say, well, I've doubted and I'm troubled, I'm plagued about uh, this business of doubt, that somebody will get the idea that uh, I'm not as good a Christian as they are. And I'm not as good as Christian as somebody else is. And uh, therefore, they bear it and they carry that load. When actually if they'd come and sit down with me or sit down with some other person, talk with me, we could help you a great deal by just talking through these things. You ought not to be that way. Face up to it. Doubt is a common experience. Now let me prove that to you. you somebody may uh, be reserved. In all my years, I've never met but one person that said I have never doubted my salvation. I was preaching up at Landis years ago, and I was preaching along these lines at a young fellow, or oh, young then, uh, 30 years old, I guess. He came to me and he said, I want you to know that you're looking at a man who's never doubted his salvation. And he was a shouting Christian. And I looked at back, I looked him in the eye and I said, well, praise the Lord, amen. I'm glad you can say that. But I thought to myself, I'd like to look you over about 10 years from now. And sure enough, about 10 or 12 years later, that same man came back to me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, I couldn't forget you because you're the only person that ever told me that you never doubted your salvation. He dropped his head and said, pray for me. I can't say that anymore. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. This matter of doubt is common. Now here's a Bible illustration of what I'm trying to say. I guess one of the greatest persons in the Bible was Elijah the Tishbite. And yet Elijah was plagued along this line. Elijah had such power that he could pray and God shut the windows of heaven that it rained not for three and a half years. And then he could pray another time and God opened their windows and the rains came in abundance. He was the kind of a man that could pray a short prayer of six to three words and God would send the fire and consume the sacrifice and burn up the altar and lap up 12 barrels of water in the trenches round about. That's the kind of man Elijah was. A powerhouse, if there ever was one, was Elijah the Tishbite. And in 1 Kings 18, he prays the fire down from God and laps up that altar and uh, executes 450 prophets of Baal. And in the very next chapter, chapter 19, the same man is hiding in a dark cave wishing that he could die. And God found Elijah hiding in the cave, and he said, Elijah, what doest thou here? And Elijah said, Lord God, I, even I, only remain in all the nation of Israel faithful, and I can't take it no longer. I've run from Jezebel my last step, and if you don't mind, let me die and come on to heaven. And God said, what are you talking about? God said, I have 7,000 people in Israel that haven't bowed their knee to Jezebel's God. And God said, get out of this cave. And God almost had to drag Elijah out of that cave. And Elijah was fear, fearful and afraid and frightened to death of Jezebel and Ahab. And right after he prayed the fire down, in the next chapter he's hiding from Jezebel. Now that to me is an illustration of what I'm talking about. Great men sometimes have trouble along this line. John the Baptizer, possibly one of the great men of the Bible, a champion of we Baptist people, no doubt about that. And John the baptizer didn't have much trouble as long as he had a pulpit and a baptistry and a congregation. He had enough courage to put his finger in the face of Herod and say, you are going to hell until you get right with God. And he says, it's not wrong for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod didn't like it and Herodias didn't like it as much as Herod did. And you know what happened? They had John arrested and put in prison and later on had his head cut off because of his courage and boldness in preaching. And when John lost his pulpit, lost his baptistry, and lost his congregation, and he's now in jail, he one day called his disciples and said, boys, I want you to go find Jesus. And when you find Jesus, ask him one question. Art thou the Messiah? 
or do we look for another? Now that's a startling thing that John the baptizer would, would lapse into that kind of doubt about the Lord Jesus. Art thou the Messiah, said John, or have we been deceived? Do we look for another? Of all the people that you would least expect that would ever say that, John probably would have been the last one, but he's the one that said it. Then old Thomas called Didymus, doubting Thomas. On the first Sunday morning after the resurrection, he said, I just can't believe it, boys. I just don't accept it. Those boys have seen the resurrected Savior, and Thomas said, don't believe a word of it. I'll not believe it until I see the nail prints, until I thrust my hand into his side. Seven days later on the next first Sunday, next uh, first day, the first day of the week, Sunday, they were assembled together again. Thomas was there, and the Lord appeared in their midst. And the first thing Jesus did was say, Thomas, look at the nail prints in my hand. And Thomas looked. Then the Lord said, Thomas, thrust thy hand into my side. And Thomas thrust his hand into the side of the Savior. And then Jesus said, uh, be not faithless, but believing. And old Thomas cried, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus said, Thomas, blessed art thou having believed, having seen. But more blessed are those who believed having not seen. That's me and you. And yes, Thomas, one of the twelve, Doubt in the resurrection of the Savior. So the matter of doubt is quite common. I think you'll have uh, problems along these lines, probably have had problems along these lines. At least I have. Many times the old devil's brow beaten me. And sometimes people aggravate it, make his bad situation worse. And the old devil says, you just didn't get it. You thought you got it, but you did, uh, just didn't get it. And uh, you never have been saved. Oh, yes. Sometimes he says, uh, you never were called to preach to begin with. It's a, it's a frightening thing what the devil sometimes suggests to you if you allow him to do so. So don't uh, face up to it. Don't run from it. Don't avoid it. Don't hide your head in the sand. Don't whistle by the cemetery. But let's get this thing straightened out. Make our peace calling and election sure. Now, I want to talk to you a moment about why we ought to know that we're saved. And you ought to know that you're saved. I remind you, first of all, that not to know that you're saved means that you have no joy. Really, no joy. You can never be a happy Christian without the assurance of salvation. These things, said John in 1 John, write unto you that your joy may be full. God wants you to be a happy Christian. And I submit you can never be a happy Christian without the assurance of your salvation. You need to know because of the joy. And then again, without the assurance of your own salvation, you can never be a good witness. You'll never be a soul winner. You'll never be able to sell Jesus or persuade a sinner to get converted until you yourself demonstrate your satisfaction, your delight, your joy in the Lord. Without assurance, there can be no witnessing and no salvation, uh, no, no soul winning. Then number three, without assurance, there's no reality. If you doubt your salvation, you can never have a real experience, a reality burning within your bones, something deep within your, within your uh, bosom that you can't describe, but it's real nonetheless. Oh, Brother Gray used to say, better felt than telt. I can't tell you about it, but he said, it's sure wonderful. That's what it is. Reality, that undescribable something that burns in the heart of a born-again believer that we call reality. You'll never have that until you have blessed assurance. And then again, without assurance, there is no motive to resist the devil and to withstand the enemy of your soul. You'll not fight the devil until, first of all, you are assured of your own salvation. Now, here's an important thing that I want to talk about uh, for a moment with you. Why do some Christians doubt? I've, I've known uh, some that seem to have great assurance, and I've known others that seem to have hardly any assurance. Why is there difference in assurance? Why is it that some people seem always happy, and others seem always bothered? Why do some Christians doubt, and others seem not to doubt, to the degree that others do? Well, I think I can give you a practical answer to that. I'd have you note, first of all, that some people doubt their salvation because they really don't know the word of God like they ought. Now, I submit to you that the clearest assurance that anybody can enjoy 
is what the Bible says about your salvation. Now, if you depend on your feelings, there'll be times when you don't feel saved. If you depend upon your experience, somebody will come along and shoot it full of holes. If you depend upon your steadfastness, you'll fail and become shipwrecked as sure as you depend upon that. You are forced and shut up to the word of God in this matter of the assurance of your salvation. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you want blessed assurance, hide the word of God in your heart. Memorize it. Quote it to the devil. Quote it to yourself. Live with it. Meditate upon it. Chew your could about it. Quote it to the devil when the devil bothers you. Talk about it. Memorize it. Say it out loud. The word of God is the greatest source of assurance in all the world. And some believers don't know it. They spend too much time with the newspapers and the magazines and the TV and the radio. The, the Bible is dusty. They don't read it. Some people don't come to church. And others go to churches that are dead. I mean, they go to churches and in 15 minutes, the preacher's finished. And you've gotten a little sermonette for a group of little Christianettes and a little revivalette. Well, you'll never have an assurance like that. Uh, you're going to have to be fed the sincere milk and meat of the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, jot upon jot, tittle upon tittle. Yeah, a little, there a little. And you hide that in your, in your, in your craw. And you've got something you can gain assurance with. You hide that in your heart and you've got something you can wield against the devil. You put that in your soul and you've got the sword of the spirit with which you can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Some people doubt because they don't know the Bible like they ought to know it. They don't study it. They don't read it. They don't come to Sunday school. They don't hear it preach. They don't hear it expounded. The best way in the world to be sure that you're saved is to sit in a congregation and let a preacher break the bread of life to you. And if you're saved, the Bible will give you assurance. If you're not saved, the Bible will beat you to death and whip you to death and convict you to death. But if you are saved, the preaching of God's word will give you blessed assurance that you pass on death into life. Then another reason some people doubt is because they don't know exactly where and when they were converted. Now I know I've heard preachers say and you've heard preachers say that unless you can carry me to the spot and tell me the very moment, and carry me within six inches the way you got converted, then you're just not saved. Now that sounds good, but there's not a word of truth in that. And if I was you, I would not put any stock in that kind of a statement. I've heard it made uh, from the pulpit many times in my life, but it won't hold water. Uh, you are dependent by making that statement upon experience. And you're making your experience salvation. When actually, reverse it. You've got salvation, and then you have experience, you see. And our experiences are different. Our salvation is common. Our faith is common. Our source of redemption is common. But the experience you have may be as different as it can be. Now, I think there are many illustrations of that that I could cite in the Bible. Suppose you were to ask John the baptizer when he got converted. Nobody doubts that he was. But John doesn't say one single word in the Bible about how and when he got converted. Not a word. Isn't that rather unique? Suppose you'd ask Elijah the Tishbite, that fearless prophet in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah, why did you get converted? It's an astounding thing that Elijah does not one time say one word about when he came to know God. Not a time. Not a time. The only person in the Bible that makes much of his experience of grace is Paul. Now, he had something to talk about. He had a real experience, sure enough. And he had something to talk about, and he talked about it in season and out of season, but he's the only person. Now, it's rather wrong for you uh, to make a binding statement that a man must have a Pauline Damascus Road experience when that's the only one in the Bible that makes much of his experience. And I can cite another dozen that were just as saved as Paul was that doesn't even mention their experience of grace. Not one time. Can't deny that, can you? Can you find anybody else in the Bible that makes much of their experience except Paul? I think you'd have some difficulty finding somebody else. But I can find many great personalities in the Bible 
that make no mention of their experience. How about Matthew, the first disciple? Now, the only word in the Bible about Matthew's conversion is in chapter 9 of his gospel where it says he left the receipt of custom and followed Jesus. And you can say that in a dozen words and that's it. And Matthew never talked about that. He never told anybody about that. He never stood before an Agrippa and said, one day I left my seat of custom and followed Jesus. His experience wasn't much, therefore he didn't talk about it. And evidently, Elijah's experience wasn't much, therefore he didn't talk about it. John's experience wasn't much, therefore he didn't talk about it. But old Paul, brother, he had dynamite in his experience. It was so great until he told it everywhere he went. But I'm not going to be naive enough to believe that only Paul was converted. I believe Matthew got a good case of it. I believe John got a good case of it. And I believe Elijah got a good case of salvation. Though they don't make much of their experience. Now, what I'm saying is that there are people in this building tonight who could not carry me to the spot that they were converted. They couldn't carry you within six inches of their experience. I couldn't do that. If you, if you sought to disqualify me, Unless I could, could carry you to the spot I was converted, you'd sure disqualify me. You'd strip me. I couldn't do it. I don't remember who was preaching. I don't remember exactly whether it was during a revival or on Sunday night. I can't recall that. I wish I could. But my experience is so, uh, so uh, insignificant until I very seldom ever make mention of it. Not worth talking about. Now, my faith is great. Oh, praise God. And my Savior is wonderful. I spend all my time talking about Jesus. My experience is not worth mentioning. And that's why I don't talk about it. It wasn't much to it. I wished a many a time that my mother, when I got converted as a lad of 12, would have shouted and cried and, and uh, hugged me and danced up and down and clapped her hands. That would have helped me, I think. But my mother was not that kind of a woman. I don't mean that a woman that does that's not a good woman, but she was just not made that way. I sometimes wish she was made that way, but she wasn't. She was very reserved. I never saw my mother weep but one time, and that's when I buried my child. But my mother was not the type of woman to just cry. A lot of women cry easy, but my mother didn't do that. Uh, she was made that way, and I inherited some of that. Uh, you just don't weep. Some people just don't weep easily. But uh, she was a good woman. My, 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 my mama was a good woman. Some of you folk know her, remember her. She loved God. But when I got converted, she didn't show any sign of joy or emotion. If she did, I don't recall it. And I wish sometimes my old dad had got a happy spell and ran up and down the aisles and hugged me and, and uh, kissed me and cried and shouted. But he didn't show any emotion either. And then I wish my preacher, if my pastor had gotten a little bit excited, that might have helped me a little bit. But he didn't get excited. I figured uh, that maybe he said, well, just another red-headed boy. Won't amount to much. Well, I haven't mounted to much except 250 pounds plus. But, uh, but he figured maybe I wouldn't even get that far, <laughs> let alone get anywhere religiously. And he showed no excitement when I got converted. I wished he had. I'd have been a big, big help to me if he showed some. I, he, he showed so little emotion until I promised God that I'd shout when people got saved after I started preaching. I wish somebody shouted when I got saved, but nobody did. I think maybe the angels did. I'll ask God when I get to heaven. I think maybe the Holy Ghost said, oh, God, I'm so glad. Hallelujah. That old boy come in. And I'm, maybe Jesus said, oh, Father, I'm so glad that boy got in. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. Nobody else seemed to be concerned. And consequently, my experience is not worth mentioning. And I couldn't carry it to the spot I was converted to save my life. So don't you strip me of my grace. And don't you rob me of my faith. Don't you compel me. And if you compel me, don't you do it lest you put your finger on a scripture verse. And I don't think you can do that. No. No, some people doubt because they don't know exactly when it happened. Now, I say, I know when I got saved. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm glad you do, and I don't doubt you one bit. But I'd like to remind you that you've got some brethren who don't know exactly when they got converted. And you're rather pharisaical if you set yourself over and above them because you can remember and your brother can't. You're setting yourself up too highly if you criticize your brother because he might not remember exactly when it happened. And some people doubt or allow the devil to make them doubt because they couldn't remember exactly when it happened.
Now, the third reason some folk doubt uh, is because they have not the witness of the Spirit. Now, the birthright of every born-again believer is the witness of God's Spirit. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me in my life. The witness of God's Spirit. Now, I can't describe to you how that happens, but it sure does happen. And it's wonderful when God sets up that witness between his spirit and your spirit that you are a child of God. Now, some people don't have that because they worship in spiritual refrigerators. Or you're not going to one of these dry-eyed and dry-eyed and unemotional Baptist churches where they finish in 15 minutes and turn the lights out in another 10 minutes and walk out shouting. You're not going to get much assurance of that kind of an outfit. But you get among people that believe in old-time religion and they're not in a hurry. They're not in a hurry to get finished. And when they turn, uh, when they observe so they hang around and talk in fellowship. And if you've got an ounce of salvation, you'll feel it. You get in the right kind of an atmosphere. If you've got old time salvation, you can feel it. Now, if you get in the refrigerator, you're so busy trying to keep yourself warm until you won't think about the assurance. But if you get around a good warm oven, if you've got salvation, you're going to have the witness. God let you have the witness. And that's wonderful when God sets up the witness and God tells me I'm his own. Have you ever gotten discouraged? Sure you have. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up because everybody would put your hand up if you were honest. Have you ever been uh, uh, well, despairing? Things haven't gone right. And you've tried to live for God and faithful to your church and faithful in your tithing. Things haven't gone right. You've been discouraged. And the old devil get on you with both feet and feed him, beat you down and threaten you and intimidate you and tell you you're not saved. And you get almost desperate. And God knows exactly how much you can take. And he'll allow you to be tempted above that which you're able to bear. But with the temptation, I will make a way of escape. And when you get to that point of breaking, God says now, Holy Spirit, that believer down there is having an awful battle with the devil. And they've taken just about all they can take. I expect you better go and, and turn that pressure off. And the Holy Spirit say, Father, I'll take care of that right now. And the Holy Spirit come down and see how much pressure I'm under. And I'm, I'm rocking and reeling under that pressure. I'm almost uh, shipwrecked under that pressure. I'm almost ready to abandon hope under that pressure. And the Holy Ghost see it, that, that awful pressure. And the Holy Spirit lift up a standard against the devil and tell the old devil, you go to hell, you lying rascal. You let that man alone. And then the Spirit of God began to fan that flame in my soul. And the first thing you know, the midnight turns to day. And the morning turns to song. And my defeat turns to victory. And in a moment I'm saying, hallelujah. In a moment I'm saying, it's so good. In a moment I'm saying, it's better felt than tout. In a moment it's burning. Now the Holy Ghost does that. And that's one reason I know I'm saved. But there's some people that don't ever have that because they worship in their own places and with their own crowd and they've got an iceberg in the pulpit and they don't get much encouragement from the Bible and consequently the devil beats them to death because they don't have the witness of God's spirit that they pass from death into life. Now, these are some practical reasons. I could go on and name some others. Practical reasons why you doubt your salvation. Another reason you doubt is because you fail to fellowship with other believers like you are. The Bible is clear that you're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. God knew that it was important that you come to church. Oh yes, I know you have to hear me preach and I've been in this pulpit 22 years. And you say, preach, I've heard you preach everything you know. I wouldn't doubt that at all. I'm not arguing that point. But you need to come, matters not. You need to be in this place. When the doors open, you need the fellowship that you can get only at this place. Matters not whether I'm preaching or whether Aiken is preaching or whether somebody else is preaching. You need the fellowship of other, of God's people in this place. And you deprive yourself of that, you're going to become lean and barren. And you're going to commit to doubt your salvation. Now I come to the important question. How can I know that I'm saved? 
Now I want to point out some Bible ways. I'll not mention my experience. I'll not mention my philosophy. I'll not mention the experience of anybody else. I'm going to give you a chapter and verse for everything I'm about to say. Number one, I know that I'm saved by the word of God. 1 John 5, 13. Make that note. 1 John 5, 13. I'll better still pick up my book at the close of the hour. These sayings have I written unto you, said God, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So I know I'm saved by what the Bible says. Now let me give another text that means a great deal to me. In 1 John 5, 1, your Bible is open, look at that verse for a moment. To me, this is the most wonderful verse in the Bible relative to the assurance of salvation. In 1 John 5, 1, the Bible says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now I can put myself in that whosoever. You can put yourself in that whosoever. And I know that I know that I know I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I know that. There's a lot of things in the world that I don't know. But there is no doubt in my mind but that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. There's nobody in this building that's uh, humble and genuine in your faith that doubts that. And you find me a man that doubts that or denies that, he's not a saved man. A man that will not confess that Jesus is come in the flesh is an antichrist. And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, sincerely, genuinely, the Bible says, you are born of God. Now, what greater assurance could you want than that? You say, well, Brother Harold, I'd rather uh, see some angels come around. I'd rather hear a voice from heaven. I'd rather have a feeling run up and down my spine. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I wouldn't mind having the feeling, but I wouldn't mind having the angel come. And say to me that I'm saved and I've seen your name written in the Lamb's book of life. But tell you the truth, I'd just about as soon risk 1 John 5, 1 as anything I've ever heard of. Because I know I believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. The, the Christ, the Messiah. And he that believeth that is born of God. Now there's the Bible. Hang to that. Pull your head upon that. Build your faith upon that. When the devil tempts you not to believe, hold on to that. When the devil threatens you, give him a dose of that. Hide it in your heart. Believe it. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. My mama taught me to believe that when I was a boy. And I believed it then because she said it. And because my Sunday school teacher said it. Because my pastor said it. But I'm no longer a child. I'm a man, an older man, and I believe it now by my own conviction and by the grace of God shed abroad in my heart. And I believe it more fervently at my age now than I believed it when I was 12 years old when I accepted it. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Go with me for a moment. Back to Samaria. Philip the evangelist having a great revival. God said, close the meeting out, go to Gaza. Philip said, Lord, no, you go to Giza, like I say. Philip closed the meeting out, went to Giza. Hadn't got to Giza long until he saw a black man riding in a chariot, reading the scroll of Isaiah. And God said, there's your man. Join yourself to that chariot and witness to that black man. And Philip joined himself to that chariot and witnessed to that uh, Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, uh, Philip, about whom does the prophet speak? About himself or does he speak about another? And the Bible says, and beginning with that same verse, Philip preached unto him Jesus. Now, I don't know how long Philip preached to that eunuch. Uh, they had a long ways to go, and nobody was in a hurry, and they was riding in a slow mode of travel. It might have been several hours, old Philip sat in that chariot, and point by point and line by line preached Jesus to that eunuch. I know he preached enough Jesus to that eunuch uh, to tell him about baptism and why people are baptized and how people are baptized. And then after a while, when that eunuch saw the water, he said, uh, here's water, why can't I be baptized? Philip said, thou mayest, if 
thou believest with all your heart. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, now listen, I want you to get this testimony. Here's a pagan, not a Jew. Here's an Ethiopian, not a Samaritan. And that, that uh, Ethiopian pagan said to Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now to me, that's the clearest testimony in the Bible. And it didn't come from a Jew, it came from an Ethiopian. And the reason that Ethiopian could give that testimony is because Philip had been faithful in preaching Jesus to that eunuch. So faithful until that eunuch could give that positive testimony. Now, if I know my heart, I want to say to you exactly what that eunuch said. I want to say it for myself. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. What do you want more than that? If you've got that and you have it in your Bible, if it's a King James Bible, I haven't examined the others. In fact, I don't plan to examine the others. I'm going to keep my King James. If you've got a King James Bible, you've got it. And you know you believe that. And the Bible says, not me, but the Bible says, you are born of God. Now that's good enough. Nobody in the world can improve on it. Number two, I know I'm saved by my love for the brethren. 1 John 3, 14. Your Bible is open, same page that is open. In verse 14, chapter 3, we know that we pass some death into life. That's a big statement, isn't it? Somebody said you don't really know until you die. That's not what John says. We know that we pass some death into life. We've already passed. Past tense. We've already passed some death in life. John, how do you know that? Because we love the brethren. Now that's something everybody in this building can get a hold of. You don't have to be a college graduate. You don't have to be a five-talented believer. You don't have to be an adult. A child can understand that. I know that I'm saved because I love the right people. Right. Right. I love the brethren. And the Bible says we know we pass some death into life because we love the brethren. Now I don't have to pinch myself and twist my arm and compel myself and make myself love you. I love you as a believer, as my brother in the Lord. I love you. Do I have to try? Suppose you were to uh, hog time me now and put me in a car and carry me downtown to one of these dimly lighted lounges. And the jukebox is blaring out as loud as the thing will go. With that pagan beat. And the glasses are tinkling. The smell of whiskey is strong. And it's sour. The smell of beer almost turns your stomach. And people are laughing. And the smoke room is filled with a heavy f uh, smoke of the cigarettes and other things. And you to carry me in that place and say, now, uh, preacher... Uh, this is your crowd. Join in. And we'll see you later. Well, I, how long would I last in that kind of a situation? That's not my crowd. So I'd offer me a, a mug of beer. I'd say, now, now, sir, I don't drink that. And they'd look at me wide-eyed and they'd say, what are you doing here then? Uh, how would you like to have a cigarette? Uh, sir, I don't smoke. What in the world are you doing here? Uh, see, that lady, you can have that lady over there if you'd like to have her. Sir, I've got a, a wife of 39 years at home, and I can't do that. What are you doing here? Well, now, if you want a different tune on the jukebox, give me a quarter, and I'll put something else on. No, no, I'd say, now, put on Amazing Grace. <laughs> uh, but you don't have Amazing Grace. You see, I'd be a misfit in that place. And I couldn't get adjusted to that. But when I come to God's house, I reach out and take you by the hand. I smile at you. And I say, good to see you. God bless you. Good to see you. This is my crowd. I like this crowd. I like the songs Brother Melvin sings. I like the hymn book. I like the musicians. I like the, the atmosphere. I like the smiles of the people. I like the shouting of Brother Jones. I love to see it. I love to feel it. This is my crowd. 
Preacher, maybe you're not saved. Oh, yes, I am, my friend, because I love the right crowd. We know we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. And if you're saved, you'll love us. Number three, I know I'm saved by the fruit of righteousness in my life. Now the text I started with a while ago in 1 John 2, 3, and hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now look at 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. 1 John 3, 10. In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness, is not of God. And then in Matthew 7, 17, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now I'm not a perfect man, but my life has been bent toward holiness and godliness for 48 years. I've been practicing righteousness. I've been tithing for 48 years. You'd call that righteousness, wouldn't you? I've been preaching 35 years. You'd call that righteousness, wouldn't you? Sure you would. I've been praying for 48 years. You call that righteousness, wouldn't you? I've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible a long time. You call that righteousness, wouldn't you? I witnessed a lot of people and baptized quite a few. You'd call that righteousness, wouldn't you? I've been passed to this church. 22, I'm talking about personal things. Now you can put yourself in that personal pronoun. 22 years, you'd call that righteousness, wouldn't you? Yes, my life has been bent. It's not perfect, but it's been bent toward God. For a long time. And he that doeth righteousness is righteous. That's what the Bible says. You practice righteousness, it's a clear indication you are righteous. Isn't that what your Bible says? Now believe that. Believe that. Your old devil comes and says, you're not saved? Tell him he's a liar. The Bible says, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. You practice righteousness, it's a good indication that you've got salvation within your heart. Then number four, I know I'm saved by my desire to turn from the world. First John 2 and verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in that man. Now, if I know my heart, I don't have any desire for the world and the things that are in it. What is the world? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. What is the world? Mammon, money. What is the world? Land, laying field to field and house to house. What is the world? Stocks and bonds. What is the world? Social prominence and prestige and political power. That's the world. I have no desire for that. None at all. I only want enough to keep body and soul together and God supplied that amply. I have no desire for fields. I have no desires for stocks and bonds. I have no desires for houses and lands. I have no desire for a big bank account. I have no desire for social prominence. I have no desire for political power. I only want to serve the Lord. Day by day, serving the Lord. Now you can elect your politicians. Let me find the elect. You can go to your social functions. Let me go to the prayer meeting. You can go down to the uh, stock exchange and buy your stocks and bonds. Let me bring my tithe in. I'm not being smart. That's how I feel about it. Now I bring my tithe in, but I don't go down to the stocks and bonds exchange. I don't have any stocks and bonds. Don't have any desire for it. You say, is it wrong for me? No, it's not wrong for you, not a bit. If you'll pay your tithe, walk humbly, and love God first, you put your stocks and bonds first, you're an idolater. You put your houses and lands first, you're an idolater. You put your automobile first, you're an idolater. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If you put the world first, the love of God's not in you. Now, you know whether that's so in your life or not. That doesn't mean that you're not tempted to commit uh, lust or commit adultery. All of us are tempted along those lines. But it means that I'm not to love the things that consist of the world. And I don't love those things. I'm tempted by the world, but I don't love the world. I have no appetite 
for the things that the world consists of. You know what I have an appetite for? Yes. I have an appetite for what I'm enjoying right now. Sure. And that's about it. I have an appetite for my family and for you and for Jesus and the Bible and for the souls of men. That's about it. I don't have an appetite for anything else. I know I'm saved because of my desire to turn from the world. Let me mention one or two others and I'll let you go. I know I'm saved also by the witness of God's spirit and I emphasized that a moment ago. Some people don't have that because of where they worship and how they worship. Then again, I know I'm saved by my overcoming the world. Now here's a verse that really has helped me. 1 John 5 and verse number 4. The Bible says, Whatsoever is born of God, I claim to be. How many of you claim to be? Let's see your hand. Whatsoever is born of God. You put your hand up and said you claim to be. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, if you're saved, now here's what the verse is saying. If you're truly saved, you'll be an overcomer. You'll stay saved. Now, the Pentecostal people call it holding out. The Methodists call it getting an extra work of grace. The Baptists call it eternal security. And the Presbyterians call it perseverance. But the Bible calls it overcoming. Call it what you may. If you're saved, you got it. You can never lose it. I've been saved 48 years. That's a pretty good indication I really got the real stuff. If I hadn't gotten the real stuff, it wouldn't have lasted 48 days, let alone 48 years. But when you get saved, you can never lose it. You'll overcome. And I'm not saved. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.